Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Of all the men who have ever lived, none has impacted the world, of course, more than the Lord Jesus did. Probably none has been more misunderstood, underrated than, uh, than Jesus as well. Jesus made some radical claims about himself. The, the, the main one was that he was God that he was God and that he was a representation of God the Father. He was, if you would, one with God the Father in heaven. And it was this claim that eventually motivated the, um, the Jews to kill the Lord Jesus. Most people today are willing to accept that Jesus is a good man or was a good man. Many are willing to accept that he was a prophet from God. But not as many are willing to accept what he claimed about himself, which was that he was God. And even fewer people are willing to submit to him or surrender their lives to follow him as God. I think a lot of times people will own Jesus as God maybe, but, uh, but following him is a, is a different thing. And all too often, we as people, we tend to patronize Jesus with our lips. We may patronize him with some church involvement, but even that is becoming less and less in, in, in our generation. But, uh, but the idea of surrendering my heart and my life to him in love and obedience, that is, that is a hard thing. Jesus has just finished teaching about the kingdom of God. If you've been here for the last few weeks, we did a few parables that Jesus taught. And he was teaching about the kingdom of God. And he presented a radically different view of the kingdom or... Uh, a different way the kingdom would come about than most people believed. Most people thought the kingdom of God would come about by violent reform. In fact, that's all they'd ever known, right? Kingdoms came by war, and they were won in war. And, and so they were thinking the same thing was going to happen again with the kingdom of God. God was going to send a warrior king who would win the battles, and the kingdom would come by force. But Jesus has just been teaching them that the kingdom of God's not going to come that way. It's actually going to start very small. It's going to begin in the hearts of men. It's going to conquer their hearts. And like a mustard seed, it would eventually spread over all the globe and become the greatest kingdom uh, ever. I'm sure that was somewhat confusing to the disciples who, who thought the kingdom was going to come by force. But it's not coming by force, Jesus had told them. So God provides Jesus with a source of authentication for what he's claiming. I mean, he's claiming something so radically different than, than they would have been expecting. God needed to give himself, if you would, an authentication for his claims. And so the authentication for his claim was the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Now, I know some people believe that Jesus did everything Jesus did innately by his power as God. I'm not one of them. And if you hold to that, you're in great company. Many people believe that Jesus as God still retained everything he did, he did by his own innate power as God. I don't believe that. I believe that when he emptied himself, that he was emptying himself of many of the abilities that he had in his divinity. Though he did not empty himself of his divine nature, I don't believe he was omniscient. I don't believe he was all powerful in his humanity as, as Jesus. So he, I believe he did everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, verse 30, I think it's verse 38, it talks about he was, how he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the, the involvement of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus a lot. We see Jesus pointing his disciples to the Holy Spirit after he's gone. But I think Jesus 
Jesus healed the sick, you know, made the blind to see, lame to walk, raised the dead. I think he all did it, always did it by the power of the Holy Spirit in him rather than by his own innate power. But, but my point is, and don't miss my point, my point is that God gave Jesus this ability to do the supernatural as a testimony to his message, as a testimony to the truth and validity of everything that Jesus taught. So the Jews were looking for this kingdom that would come by force. Jesus says it's not coming by force. It's coming by the work of God in the hearts of men. It'll eventually overtake the world. Um, they longed, by the way, they longed for the same kingdom that we longed for, the Jews did. They, they longed for a kingdom where the pain and suffering of this life would end and there would be only joy and peace. One commentator said about the kingdom that the Jews were looking for, and I quote, everything that now blights man's happiness, that breaks his heart, that frustrates his hope, hopes, that disrupts and perverts his dominion will be removed forever for all time and eternity will be redeemed. That was what the Jews were looking for. They just thought that such a kingdom would come by, by war. You know, Jesus is saying it's not coming by war. I'm promising the same kingdom, but it's going to come a totally different way. So the miracles were to strengthen the faith of the disciples. And in, in great part, the, the miracles were to establish their faith, to, to, to set it in concrete, if you would, in their hearts that Jesus was God. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I, I think probably nothing Jesus did would do that more than, than what we're going to read about this morning. Now, I also believe that this morning was uh, a test. I, I think that Jesus, either by by word from the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think he knows that this is going to be a test of their faith. It is going to be that. It's going to be a test of whether they would rely and where they've come to a place where they rely completely and trust completely in him and in his power and all. Um, but it's also going to be a story where he is going to teach them something about himself. That no matter how the kingdom comes, even though it's not coming by force and by power, it's not because the king lacks power. It's not because the king doesn't have the ability to do everything that they might want him to do, okay? So this story is going to prove to them he has the power. So what I want to do with this story, I want to do two things with the story. I want to help us understand why the story is in the Bible first, and then I'm, I'm going to do something else with the story. So let's get through the first part, and we'll come back to the second. Here's, here's the important, this is why this story is so important. Let's, let's read the story first. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, this would be the day that Jesus was teaching from the boat there off the shore, teaching about the kingdom. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took along, uh, took him along since he was in the boat. And the other boats and other boats were with him. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat. So the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So after teaching all day, Jesus is exhausted. He says, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. They get in the boat. He falls asleep from, uh, from his exhaustion. And as they're going across the sea, a storm comes up. It's a quick storm. It happened evidently quite a bit. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. 
Uh, on the north end of it rises Mount Hermon. It's like 900, uh, 9,000 feet above sea level. William Barclay, a commentator, said this about the Sea of Galilee. He said, it is not unusual to see terrible squalls hurl themselves, even when the sky is perfectly clear, upon these waters which are ordinarily so calm. The numerous ravines which are to the north, east, and east emerge upon the upper part of the lake, operate as so many dangerous gorges um, in which wind from the heights of Huron and the plateaus of Traconitis or something like that and the summit of Mount Hermon are caught and compressed in such a way that they rush down with tremendous force through the narrow space and then being suddenly released they agitate the little lake of Gennesaret in the most frightful way. So evidently as best I understand what Barclay's saying is that there's all these ravines and gullies in the mountain and as the winds come off the mountain they get funneled into the compressed into these hard winds that just stir up the lake at a moment's notice. Now the storm is so violent that these fishermen are scared. I mean these are experienced fishermen but as far as they're concerned the boat is sinking and and if it sinks and they're in those waves they will drown and so they waken Jesus out of their fear. Now Jesus is perturbed, not from being awoken, but he is perturbed because of their fear. And I think also because they question his love for them. Did you notice what they said? Don't you care? They wake him up and the first thing they say to him is, don't you care? Don't you care for us? Don't you care about our well-being? They ask. Jesus stands up, rebukes the storm, and immediately the winds and waves calm down. And then we read this, and they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The storm scared them, but evidently what happened at the end scared them even even more. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. They recognize, here's why they're afraid, everyone. They're afraid because they recognize that they are in the presence of God. Because there's only one, one who could stand up and say to the wind, stop. And the waves stop. And for it to immediately stop, like there's only one that could do that. And that's God. And so there's this, this realization for them that they are in the presence of Yahweh, the God that they worship. They recognize that, and it says that they're terrified. So I want to answer the question, why is this story recorded for us uh, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Good News of Mark, and in the other three other places? It's recorded for us because God is proving, and God is showing, and God is demonstrating beyond any doubt to his disciples that Jesus is God. That's the reason this story is recorded for us. The kingdom would not come by force. It would have an inauspicious, uh, inauspicious start, okay? It, but it's not because the king doesn't have power. He could do it any way he wanted, but he's not going to do it the way they think, but he has power because he is God. And if you remember nothing else this morning, if you remember nothing else, please remember this. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator God. Become one of us. And this is what this story, one of the ways that Mark is trying to show us that this is who Jesus is. Now, I said there was two things I want to do with this story, and here's the second uh, thing I want to do with it. I want to treat this story as a parable or as an allegory. Now, this is not a parable of Jesus. This is a parable uh, of Jimmy, all right? And, uh, but don't be, don't be offended by that or don't be shocked by that. This is how every pastor uses this uh, passage. They use it as, as a parable. But I'm just telling you, this is a parable that I'm going to throw, this is a story that I'm going to throw alongside truth 
and help illustrate it. Parables are often allegories. For those of you who are not very up on your English, I'm, I'm one of those. An allegory is a form of extended metaphor in which objects, persons, and actions in a story are equated with the meanings that lie outside the story itself. The underlying meaning uh, as moral, social, religious, or political significance and the characters are often personifications of abstract ideas like charity, greed, and envy. Well, that's another kind of allegory we're going to use. We're going to use this as a parable. It's going to be a story, uh, a true story. Uh, allegories are mostly uh, fictitious stories, made-up stories where animals are the main characters and they represent something, right? This is a true story like Jesus used, right? He used true things that we believe might have been true stories. This could be a true, this is a true story, and, but I'm gonna use it as a parable to, to show us some things or to teach us some things. And I'm gonna use this story as a parable or as an allegory of the storms, the, the metaphorical, the, the storms of life, not the literal storms where we got rain and lightning and wind and all that. I'm gonna use this story as symbolic of the storms storms that we go through in life. You know, Michael picks the music, and I hadn't actually seen the music that he picked. The first, the first song was so appropriate with, with what we're going to do right now. We're going to look at this story as a parable of the storms. And by storms, I mean the hardships and the suffering and the pain and the difficulties that we go through uh, with, with life. There are probably few of us in this room, if anyone, that has never been through a storm, right? A difficulty in their life. All of us have been. And some of you, you may be in the worst squall, worst storm you've ever been in in your life. In fact, I mean, I don't know the Hamilton family. I feel close to them because of Anna bringing them to our attention. And just because of circumstances, I feel close to them. But I, I would dare say this is the biggest storm the Hamilton family's ever been in, right? So, but storms can be things like we, we don't just have to be death or cancer. They can be things like losing our job, uh, the death of a loved one, of course, your marriage might be suffering, your storm might be financial burdens, or maybe it's physical health, that sort of thing. I mean, the storms of our life can be as numerous as numerous as the difficulties and trials of our life. So if you would, let me use this as a parable to kind of teach us some things about these storms that we go through in our life. Here's the first thing I'd like you to note parabolic, parabolically is that sometimes we're in a storm because we're obeying Jesus. Now in this literal story, Jesus tells them to get into the boat and head to the other side. They're in the storm out of obedience to Jesus. We tend to think that when we follow Jesus, there's no storms ahead because I'm following Jesus. I want you to understand through the storm, it illustrates to us that's just not true. Sometimes you can be following Jesus and you end up in a storm. In fact, I would say this to you uh, this morning that uh, there is not a person living as a Muslim in safety around the world that if they began to follow Jesus, they're going to immediately get into probably the biggest storm of, of their life. A woman in, this is, you know, that, that National International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. A woman in India watches as her sister's dragged off by Hindu nationals. She doesn't even know if her sister's alive. A man in North Korea prison camp is awakened every morning and then beaten unconscious every morning again and again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped the Boko Haram, which kidnapped her. She's pregnant. She returns home, and her community rejects her 
and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down the church uh, to the church's worship center after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. I mean, I don't want to repeat necessarily all these statistics, but 360 million Christians live in places or are experiencing uh, persecution for following Jesus. That's, I think that's the population of our country. That many Christians around the world are today experiencing that kind of persecution. And it's not just them. I mean, sometimes we, it's a limited persecution. It's hard to equate, it's hard to put them on the same scales, right? But, but you know, following Jesus, you follow Jesus and it may cost you your job, especially if you're living for him and speaking for him, it may cost you your job. Sometimes storms just come. Maybe they're not because we're specifically following Jesus, but don't we tend to think when we follow Jesus that we, don't have, we won't have any storms in our life? I mean, we, we preach enough in our church, right, in our church family that um, storms are just part of, of life and you're not necessarily gonna be immune from them, but I'm telling you, there's a great segment of the body of Christ that, that teaches that you know, we shouldn't have any storms. If we just have enough faith, we won't have any storms. I, that's simply not true. Right? I mean, you can be just loving Jesus, following Jesus, being obedient to Jesus, and all of a sudden you don't feel good and you find out you got stage four cancer and they've given you three or four months to live, right? So, I mean, storms come not because you're following Jesus, but in spite of the fact that you're following Jesus. So, um, I think I've said enough about that. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Uh, our storms often unsettle us. The storm scared, this storm scared these experienced fishermen, right? It unsettled them. They were out of control. They were sinking. They were going to drown, and so they were afraid. I want to say to all of you that the storms of your life, and I don't, I'm not talking about rainstorms. I'm talking about the storms of life, right? They, they can unsettle us. And in fact, I think a lot of times that's exactly what they do. We begin to worry, or we begin to become anxious because of the storm we're in. Instead of trusting and resting in Jesus, we fight desperately to control our situation. It doesn't take long for us to tire in fighting against the storm. We'd like to sit and relax in the storm, but this is what we reason. God's not doing anything. If I don't do something to fix this, right, then it's not, it's not going to get any better. And so we, we try and try hard to fix it, and we, we, we're, we're not resting in the Lord. Ever feel like that? I mean, I know that's my, that's my story. I want to control things. The storms of our lives can be unsettling in that they make us anxious and, and worrisome. Here's just a tangential note, and I'm sure you've probably noticed, I've pointed it out before when going through this passage. Did you notice that there's other boats alongside them as they leave? If you look at the text, it says, and there were other boats with them. You know, I've thought about this a lot over the years. You know, Jesus was in their boat, but they're in the same storm and Jesus isn't in their boat, right? So there's a lot of people out there, folks, who are in the storm of their life and Jesus isn't in their boat. When you uh, are being unsettled by a storm, at least remember this, Jesus is in your boat, okay? He's in your boat. Number three, our storms often, excuse me, our storms don't unsettle God. Our storms unsettle us, quite often, but they don't unsettle God. So the storm unsettled the disciples, but not Jesus. He's asleep. 
He remains asleep. And you might push back on me and say, well, he didn't understand the gravity of the storm because he's asleep. And that would be true. He would not necessarily know the gravity of the storm because he is asleep. But when he wakes up, he's not unsettled. Did you get that? He's not unsettled when he wakes up. God is never anxious or worried about our storms. Now, you might again push back and you might say, yeah, but it's not happening to him. It's happening to you, right? The storm is your storm. And so it's not happening to him. That's why he's not unsettled when our storms come against us. Um, But what I'm trying to say to you is that God isn't anxious for us. He's not anxious for us in the middle of our storms. And, and, And here's why. And let me be honest, your storm may kill you. Your, your storm, you may not get out of your, your storm, right? It may kill you, you may die, okay? But God knows that he has already given you the gift of eternal life. And though you die, yet shall you live. And, and so just like Peter says that Jesus entrusted himself to God to raise him from the dead, We're going to just entrust ourselves in the middle of our storm that no matter what happens in our storm, God's got this. He's got our back. It's going to turn out good for us in the end. God is never caught off guard. He's never worried. He sits in his heaven and does whatever he pleases. And what he's pleased to do is to rescue you. Now, now hear me out here. I don't mean that he's going to calm your storm. In fact, the only record we have that Jesus ever calmed a literal storm is this one. And there's lots of storms in, in men and women's lives, even in the time when Jesus walked the earth, where they would say, you know, hey, there's lots of people lining up here. And Jesus said, we need to go on to the next place. And so there's a lot of people left in, in their storms, right? Jesus doesn't always stop our storm. In fact, I I would say that there's so, I don't don't know what the percentage is, but there's so many storms that have to run their course in our life with the consequences of whatever those storms might be. And there's a lot of storms that end in death for us or for the the one that we love that's in the middle of that storm, right? But here's my point. God is still going to rescue us He's still going to rescue us. He's invited us to be a part of his kingdom. And so he's not anxious for you and for me. I'm a sucker for happy endings in movies. And I'll tell you this, I I do not like movies that end bad. And the reason I don't like them to end bad is why, I mean, life is hard, right? Why go to a movie to watch it end bad? I want to go to a movie and watch it end good. And it's especially hard when the good guy dies. Now, if you're not a Marvel fan, just... Bear with me for a minute. This won't make any sense to you. But man, I almost cried when Iron Man died because he's a good guy, right? I didn't want Iron Man to die, but they, they killed him. Why did, why did Iron Man have to die, right? So here's a spoiler alert, but hopefully a faith inspire. Though we die in our storms, yet it's the end, it's the end of the storm, but it's not the end of us. We shall live again. Just like Thanos, still back to, my, back to my Marvel thing. Just like Thanos kills everyone for five years. And Doctor Strange said, there's no other way except this way. In the end, they come back. Well, in the end, God's going to raise us from the dead. And though we die for five, 10, 500, 2,000 years, yet we shall live. And when we rise to live with the Lord, There will be not the storm we were in, and nor will there be any other storm after that. 
my next thing. I don't know what to call these, but these are the, the, I think this storm just pictures parabolically some truth about the storms of our life. Here's the next one. Our storms can cause us to doubt the love of God for us. I tell you, the saddest part about this, the saddest part about this story is what happens when they wake Jesus up. What do they wake him up with? Somebody tell me, what do they wake him up with? What? You don't care for us. They wake him up with an accusation of you don't care for us. I mean, I'm telling you, that's, that's got to be, be low. I, I tell you, one of the, I, I've made mistakes and I've made wrong choices and, and all, but it's never been out of a, a lack of care. I can't imagine how it is for the son of God, for, for the ones that he loves and the ones he's giving his life to, to wake him up and say, don't you care for us when he cares for them greatly. And this is really Satan's uh, underlying accusation with Eve, is it not? Don't you, you know, if God doesn't really care for you. If God really cared for you, he, he wouldn't keep this fruit from you. That's really what is accusation. It's the atheist accusation against God too. If God is all loving and all powerful, then why are you in this storm? So it must be that God's not all powerful or God doesn't love you, one of those two things. And, and, and most of the time they point to the fact that, they point to what they believe is that God well, they didn't believe God doesn't exist, but they definitely want to point out that God doesn't love you because of the storm that you are in. So if you, if you allow me, I want to tell you how, how I try to overcome the storms in my life and the doubt. The Bible says that Satan cast fiery darts at us, right? What's a fiery dart? It doesn't really tell us. I think fiery darts are those thoughts that Satan throws across our mind that make us want to doubt the goodness of God or make us want to doubt the love of God. I think, they're the, I think some of those things are thoughts that he sows into, uh, sows into our mind. But I want to tell you how, how I try to deal with those, those fiery darts and when the storm is going on in my life, how do I, how do I um, not doubt the love of God in that? So I want to share with you, I, I, I want to share with you three affirmations and one of them comes from personal observation. One of them comes from biblical inspiration. And then one of them comes from my putting those two things together. So let me, let me walk you through how I try to not let Satan throw darts across my mind. Here's the first. This is my observation. I do believe that God has set up a world that operates primarily on the natural laws that he has established. No, that's a mouthful. It's on the screen, right? Okay, so and what I mean by this is that, that God has established a universe that works by consistent patterns. So, for example, it doesn't matter where you are, the laws uh, of motion and gravity and thermodynamics are present and measurable. So, you know, because God has established that that way. This means that I, I don't believe that God specifically and specially is causing every storm. I'm talking about literal storms now. I, I don't believe he's necessarily causing every literal storm that happens, but rather most natural storms happen because of the laws of thermodynamics and how God has established and made the world to work. And so uh, I think that most metaphorical storms happen the same way. Metaphorical storms, I think, come about because of 
the events that have been set in motion, sometimes by me, sometimes by others, sometimes by things that are beyond my control. And, and these produce these difficult storms in my life, not just the literal storms. I would say most storms, uh, because God, I would say God, most storms come this way, but not all storms, because the Bible says God sits in his heaven and he can do whatever he pleases, right? So God at times is pleased, I believe, to violate his natural laws and bring storms to pass that he might want. And I would, I would say that would be true of metaphorical storms or, or what do I call them? I want to call them metaphorical storms. I'm just going when I, when I, I'm going to say real storms or literal storms, or I'm going to say storms. And by storms, I mean the difficult storms of life, okay? So again, here's what I reason by my observation. And that is that God has established natural laws. And natural laws, as they interact with each other, they, the laws of thermodynamics bring literal storms. And the interactions of people with their choices and decisions bring about often these uh, painful storms in our life. And here, just to illustrate my observation, NASA recently hit the dimorphous asteroid in space. Probably most of you heard of this. It's 7 million miles away. It's 525 feet across. And we hit it with a bomb the size of a refrigerator. How did we do that? We did that because we did it to see if we could move its trajectory, which we did. We succeeded. But how did we hit something that's traveling in space? I didn't even talk about how fast it's going, but it's 7 million miles away traveling in space at some ridiculous speed, and we hit it with a bomb the size of a refrigerator. How do we do that? Because the laws that God has established are consistent, and we've been able to measure them, and they were able to hit that asteroid. So here's number two. And this is what I believe is a biblical uh, revelation from God. I do believe that God has established natural laws that interact with each other. Number two, I don't believe the Bible teaches that God is the direct cause of all that is happening in the world. And I want to say that if premise one is true, then this premise also would have to be true. Does the Bible substantiate it? I believe it does. I don't believe the Bible teaches that God is the direct cause of all that's happening. And what I mean by that is I don't believe that God is the cause of every storm that is in my life. Now, some folks believe the Bible teaches that not a dust might moves without God making it move or decreeing it to move. And, and many a Christian says that if God is not causing everything to happen that happens, then storms in our lives are random and without purpose. In other words, if God's not causing that storm in your life, then that means it has no purpose. It's just a storm that's come about because of the laws that God has established have just happened. And so that storm has no purpose. And people say they find great comfort in the idea that God is the cause and has a specific purpose and plan for the storm that you're in the middle of. He's bringing it about. And we, we hear this a great deal. I've heard it much throughout my life. People will say, well, you know, a big storm, I'm in the middle of a big storm. And they say, well, God's got a plan. Plan. And, and the implication is that God brought this storm to me because he's trying to work out some purpose in my life. Now, I want to be honest. I personally don't find that comforting. 
I know lots of Christians do, and, if, and, and it may be true. Maybe that is how it operates. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm telling you how I deal, how, how Jimmy addresses when Satan whispers in my ear that God doesn't love me, and I'm in the middle of a terrible storm that's really painful. I'm trying to tell you how I deal with it. And, and I deal with observation. I see God has set up natural law. The scripture, I think, teaches that God is not controlling, micromanaging all that happens in our world. And so I don't, I don't find the idea that God is micromanaging comforting. I find the other comforting. So the question, however, isn't what causes you great comfort. If what causes you comfort is that God is micromanaging everything so that every storm in your life, God has brought it to you on purpose for a reason, if you find comfort in it, that's great. If you find comfort in the idea that God is not doing that, that's great too, but that's really not the issue. The issue is what does God reveal in the scripture? So when I read statements like this that God made in Jeremiah 19.5 where he says, yes, they built shrines to Baal to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, and I guarantee you that was a storm for their sons and daughters, although I never commanded it or ordered such a thing, nor did it ever cross my mind, I think God is clearly telling us that he is not specifically directing and causing every evil thing or every storm in our life, especially moral evils in our life. I don't believe that he's saying that I am bringing those to pass because I've got some purpose in it. Now, let me be clear. Nothing happens in God's world that God doesn't have the ability to stop, change, or prevent. He's sovereign. By sovereign, I mean not that he micromanages the universe, but that he sits in rulership over it. He rules it. He has all authority and all power. And therefore, our prayers matter. Because as we pray, God can choose from his sovereign seat in heaven to intervene in any place and anywhere at any time that he wants to. And he says, I listen to your prayers. And I respond to your prayers. Let me also be clear, God uses storms in our life. Even though I'm falling on the side over here that's saying, I believe that so many storms in our life come to us because of choices that I've made or choices that you've made that affect me. Even though I believe that they're not coming because God says, I want the storm in this person's life, what I am saying is God's gonna use that storm in my life. He's gonna use that storm in my life every single time. He's not gonna waste a single storm. And he's gonna use that storm to teach me that he's with me, that he cares with me. To the Hamiltons, I would say, God's going to use this storm to say to you, I'll never leave you or abandon you, abandoning you. And I think he's going to use every storm in our life to teach you that he cares and he, and he loves you. I, I think he's going to use storms for those purposes. Let me bring you the third. The third thing is my bringing those two together. Therefore, I don't believe storms or the lack there are are a measure of God's love for me. Let me repeat that. I don't think a storm in my life or the lack of a storm in my life is a measure that God loves me, okay? I think the measure of God's love for me is that he was willing to become like me and come down here and die for me, and that is the measure of God's love for me. For God so loved the world that he gave me Jesus and he gave you Jesus so he might die for you so that you might have eternal life. It is not whether you're in a storm or out of a storm or there's a purpose behind the storm. 
It, the measure of God's love is found in Jesus, not in whether I have a storm or don't have a storm. So when you're in a storm and the enemy is whispering in your ear, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care for you. I mean, you just tell him back, say, no, storms are not a measure of God's love for me. Storms are not how I know God loves me. I know God loves me because Jesus died for me and he lives within me and he's not leaving me in the middle of the storm. And he's not gonna leave you in the middle of that storm. He's gonna be with you all the way, all the way to the end. Jesus is the measure of God's love for me. No, two more real quick. Our storms are a test of our faith. In a storm, Jesus rebuked the men. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Here's the reality of the storm. It was a test of their faith and they failed. Jesus said to them, do you have no faith? Remember, Jesus would tell them that if you have the faith the size of a what? A mustard seed, which wasn't the parable the other week, right? I will make that clear. That was a different parable. This is a different one. If you have the faith the size of the littlest seed there is, you can move a mountain. So the issue is not, the, he says, do you still have no faith? I mean, I might be making a, uh, what's it, a, a mountain out of a mole here, a molehill here, but it sounds like to me that he's saying to them, guys, you, you don't even have the, the faith the size of a mustard seed. Because if you did, then you, not that you wouldn't be afraid, but you would not have acted in this way. And storms, whatever storm is in your life, it's a test. It is always going to be a test of your faith. And um, the smallest amount of faith, I think, would have kept them from accusing him of not caring for them. And I think the smallest amount of faith in their life would also have quelled their fears. Their faith should have led them to speak to Jesus instead of being overwhelmed by fear. And maybe this is true... I'm thinking out loud, maybe this is true of every storm in your life. Maybe every storm in your life is, um, is a test of your faith. Every storm that, that comes your way, if I'm wrong by the hand of God, or if I'm right because it's, it's what it means to live in a broken, fallen world, it, either one of those, what, what, when storms come out, Every storm is going to be a test of your faith, whether or not you will be overpowered by your fear or whether you will let your faith overpower your fear. I've said this before. I don't know if I'm right or not, but I think fear is an emotive response. And so I, um, I don't know that you can control your fear. I mean, I don't know if you can say, I'm just not gonna be afraid. I think fear just kind of wells up. But I do believe this. I do believe that though I am emotively fearful, I don't have to let that fear rule my life. I don't have to let that fear control me. I don't have to let that fear dictate what I'm going to do or not do. The test of faith is not whether God will stop the storm, do away with the storm. The, the fear of the, I mean, the test of the faith is, can I trust that God loves me in the middle of the storm? Can I trust that in the end it's going to be okay because he cares for me? Listen, God doesn't remove all storms, right? I mean, faith is not, hey, if you have enough faith, that storm will go away. That's not true. Some storms, you die in the middle of them. You just don't, you don't outlive the storm. It kills you, right? The, 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 the test of faith is, can I trust God in the middle of it? You remember Job, when he's in the middle of his storm, what does his wife say to him? 
curse God and die. I mean, she didn't have no faith, right? She, she's obviously abandoned any of her belief that God is good, right? Curse this God that you say you love. Curse him and die. And Job says, no, I'm not going to do that. Will I not receive good from the hand of God and bad? You know, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. This is the test of faith. Will you love God and trust God and stay faithful to the Lord? Or will you abandon and leave the Lord in, in your storm? And I think the other test, I already mentioned this, but I think the other test is the, will I let fear rule in my life? Will I let it control me? As their fear arose, they woke Jesus up. You know, if, if they'd had faith, this is what I think would have happened. They'd have gone to Jesus and said, hey, wake up. We need your help. This is overpowering us. You know, we need your help. I think that's what faith would have looked like. I don't think faith would have sat there and done nothing. I mean, they're bailing the boat. It's actually sinking, right? I mean, the laws of nature, you put more water in the boat, it's gonna go down, right? They recognize that, right? So faith is not just not doing anything. It's not, bail- it's not, not bailing the boat, right? But, it's, but it's, it's trusting that Jesus loves me and, and he can help me and going to him for help. Instead, they accuse him of, of not caring for them. Your storm is a test of your faith. Whatever storm you're in, or when you're in it, it's a test of your faith. Will you love God? Will you just, will you love God in the midst of that? Will you trust him? uh, Or will you surrender to your fear and let it control you? And then the last thing, we should desire to please God. And these are things I saw illustrated in this real storm that I think apply to our uh, metaphorical hardship storms. We should desire to please God more than we fear the pain, terror, or death of the storm. All right? So when they get to the end of this and Jesus has calmed the storm, let's read it again, verse 41. They were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, this is really strange, but they say that the word for, it says they're terrified there, it's a stronger word for terror than the word that they had when it said that they were afraid of the storm. In other words, they were more afraid at the end than they were at the beginning. Why would they be more terrified after the calming of the storm? Why would they not be filled with joy and, and, and peace now that the storm is over? Um, I think, listen, I think it's because they failed the Lord. I think that's the reason they were terrified is because they had failed the Lord. The disciples had just clearly blown it. They'd accused, the, they'd accused God of indifference and they'd accused God of not caring for them. They didn't trust him or his power. And when he calms the storm, they know it and they feel it. This is God. We're in the presence of God and we just failed God and they were afraid. And they were terrified. And we see this throughout the scripture, right? Isaiah's in the presence of God. Remember this, Isaiah 6? And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm in the presence of God and I'm a sinner. How about Peter when he recognizes Jesus in the boat the first time, right, with all the fish? Remember, he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful, I'm a sinful man. Maybe Peter's got more terror this time because he realizes, man, I shouldn't have, I should have known better. I should have known better. Whatever they thought, why they were afraid in the presence of God, I'm pretty sure it's because they failed the Lord. So if you're in a storm or fear is rising, make a decision that it's more important to you to love and trust God. I mean, make, make a decision that 
that what matters most is your faith, not your terror. Choose, choose your faith over your terror so that, you know, when you stand before Jesus one day, you, you won't feel like them. You won't feel like them. Wow, we, we blew it. I, I may be wrong, man. I may be wrong about this, but I think if they hadn't failed the Lord when he calms the sea, I have a feeling that maybe their response would have been joy and admiration Praise and worship, and not necessarily terror. I mean, maybe in the presence of God, so maybe it would have been terror all along, but I think it's their sin that led to their terror. And I just really want to encourage us to, to choose faith, not sin, in the midst of our storms. Did Jesus know this storm uh, would come up? Did Jesus know this storm? When he said, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side, did he know the storm was going to come up? Well, maybe. I, I, like I told you, I don't think he would have known it innately. I think the Holy Spirit may have told him, um, may have told him that it was coming up. Would Jesus have had a desire for his disciples in that storm? Absolutely. And it's the same desire he'd have for you and me today. And that would be that in the middle of the storm, you and I would trust him. You and I would just uh, rest in him. You know, that we would, we would know that he cares for us, okay? But they failed, and uh, they allowed their fear to lead to bitterness and re- resentment against the one who was in charge. So how about us this morning? How about you? Are you in a storm right now? And if you are, and I know some of you are, but if you're in a storm, how, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with that storm you're in? Are you resting in the Lord? Are you saying to your are you saying no to your fear and yes to your faith? You know? On that day will you hear Jesus say, Hey, well done, Jimmy. Well done. I appreciate your faith and your trust in me. That just means so much to me. Or will he be like, Jimmy, where was your faith? After all these years, where was your faith in the middle of that, in the middle of that storm? What's your frame of mind? in your storm. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.